Hello and welcome to another episode of Change One Thing, the show where we explore if tomorrow will really be what tomorrow will be. Hi there, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Lani Salathiel, and welcome to Change One Thing. This is a fascinating conversation with Associate Professor Eben Kirksey from the Alfred Deakin Institute at Deakin University. Eben is an American anthropologist who specialises in science and justice. We are lucky to have Eben as he is about to be hosted by Princeton University's Institute for Advanced Study, where he'll be conducting research on gene editing, the innovation economy and social inequality. Eben has published two books, Freedom in Entangled Worlds and Emerging Ecologies, with his new book set to be published later this year. He is an established curator in the art world, overseeing acclaimed exhibits in New York City, Ross Kilda Festival and Brooklyn. A worldly and extremely wise human being, Eben has to be one of the most interesting people I have ever met. We cover gene editing, superhumans, mutants and much, much more. He is a unique mind and I'm sure you will all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So let's begin Change One Thing with Associate Professor Eben Kirksky. Well, welcome, Eben. You have a noticeable American accent there. Whereabouts did you grow up? So I grew up in Florida, sort of the sunshine state, the beautiful beach part of the uh, U.S. And growing up, were your parents sort of interested in um, science? Were they? What was your childhood like? Uh, so I moved around a lot. So I moved from Florida, Tennessee, Ohio to Washington D.C. So. Uh, yeah, various different environments. My dad was an environmental engineer. Um, he worked on everything from bicycle lanes to solar panels, uh, and he had a lot of interesting books on his shelf. Wow. So you had quite the experience as a child. You would have seen you know, a lot of different environments and, and just had that influence coming from your dad that is yeah, that's really, it's in the DNA, I guess. Uh, you're an anthropologist and you've been acclaimed as being one of the world's most promising young anthropologists. What's your fascination with human behaviour and have you, all, have you always been curious about studying it from a young age? Yeah, so I think moving around a lot as a kid, I encountered these different social scenes and basically became really curious about what it is that makes people tick. And what does make people tick, Evan? So, so yeah, I think an anthropologist would answer that question thinking about language, thinking about culture, thinking about the shared values that we have. So, you know, what, what motivates us is, is what anthropology is all about. What, what desires are, are sort of part of a given cultural milieu. That's, that's what anthropology is about. Wow. And do you see sort of very distinct, similar uh, motivations that particular cultures have? So say like um, Western culture here in Australia, are there um, typically very similar things that motivate us all? Well, Clifford Geertz, a, a famous anthropologist who was at Princeton, uh, liked to talk about culture as a joke. So uh, basically to be sort of part of a culture, you have to be able to get the joke. So there's usually kind of insider meanings to a, a given uh, uh, cultural system. 
So yeah, being able to get the joke is what it's all about when you're an anthropologist. <laughs> I never get the joke. So, you know, <laughs> I think there's something wrong with uh, going on with my motivations then. <laughs> um, I read that you're studying how gene editing tools are opening up new futures for the human species. Firstly, can you expa- explain what gene editing is and how it can affect our future? Well, first of all, I think editing is a bad metaphor for thinking about what's what's going on. So with a computer, I can add text letter by letter, line by line. The, the main tool that people are talking about in terms of editing is called CRISPR. It's, it's this fast and cheap tool that lets you tinker with DNA. Uh, I like to think of CRISPR more like a missile. So you give it GPS coordinates, it goes somewhere in your chromosomes, and it basically makes damage. And uh, there is actually a difference between CRISPR and a missile. Every time a missile hits a target, it blows up. CRISPR can keep bouncing around inside of your genome, doing all kinds of damage. So thinking about this as editing doesn't give it a sense of risk, doesn't signal the need for caution. So, so there's lots of different metaphors you can throw at it. But ultimately, I think, you know, what CRISPR fundamentally does is create mutants. It changes DNA and not always in a predictable way. Wow, that's so interesting. And I do have a quote in regards to CRISPR uh, from Deacon's Disruptor that uh, in an article called Chasing the Molecule, and you say with CRISPR, scientists can cause changes in DNA in humans, plants and microbes. In humans, factors like eye or hair colour can be manipulated. So we have to consider if there is the potential to create a more homogeneous group of people in the longer term or if there's a risk that by manipulating DNA we are further exacerbating social inequalities. CRISPR could be used to normalize the human species making people who are faster better and stronger or it could be used for more creative applications. So speaking about this CRISPR like in your most general (laughs) terms what is it and What's a little bit of your research around that technology? So it's very early days with Mm -hmm. CRISPR research. We're just starting to see some of the first uh, clinical trials in the United States and China. There's a bunch of people working with it and basically learning that it isn't all that predictable. So there's a lot of fantasies and dreams attached to the technology. And, And some of those dreams are about curing medical diseases. So Um, One risk of the technology is that people come up with arbitrary standards of what needs to be corrected. So, for example, there's a a number of genetic tests out there on the market. If you want to have a new baby, there's a way of telling if your child will be intersex. Um, So people are choosing to have abortions because they don't want to have children that are different from, from the norm. So if, if we think about this in the near future, when you have a tool like CRISPR that in theory, again, the theory is, is a little bit far from the practice. In theory, CRISPR could manipulate any gene in the genome. And with other tools, you could add different DNA to make all sorts of interesting things. Um, but the risk is that we have some kind of norm, whether that norm is about who's beautiful, who has the best sports performance. Um, there, there's been a lot of studies of things like intelligence. Um, 
the genetics of that are super complicated, but there's this aspiration that will make better people. And this isn't anything new. There's <laughs> this word called eugenics that, you know, everyone knows about in terms of the Nazi death camp. Uh, eugenics is, is an idea that's been around for a long time, and it's basically about improving uh, uh, the population, improving the species. So already in the birth clinic, you have technologies with eugenic tendencies. So now if you are pregnant um, and a test comes back and says you have a baby with Down syndrome, the doctors are going to tell you that it might be in your interest to have an abortion. So, so those mm. kinds of tools are reducing diversity in the human species, and a tool like CRISPR could do that even further. So with CRISPR, are we looking at, are people particularly looking at sort of um, eradicating things like the things that we consider the bad diseases, like such as um, HIV or some or cancers, or are we more looking at it to be like, I want a baby with blonde hair, blue eyes, and, you know, that's really good at sport. They're going to go to the Olympics because they're going to be some sort of little superhuman so uh, there isn't very clear legal guidance mm. from many countries about how this technology should be used, if it should be used at all. So the very first babies that were produced with CRISPR emerged last year uh, in China, and, and I was there speaking on, on a summit. So we all had come together to talk about the theory, uh, you know, in theory, like if we were to use this technology, how should it be used? What are the ethical issues that we should be thinking about? When we all showed up on a Monday, someone had just done it, <laughs> and we were all kind of <laughs> left to, uh, you know, do a lot of quick homework. About so that was China, wasn't it? Yeah, that was yeah. China. So uh, a, a scientist uh, by the name of J.K. Ha, uh, Dr. Ha, uh, tried to create children that were naturally resistant to HIV. And what he did was take a gene that's been well studied in people who naturally have a mutation, and he tried to alter it. So in, in theory, like if you produce this change, um, you could have children that are going to be resistant to HIV. The, the big downside that not a lot of people are talking about, to get a health benefit like that, you have to go through IVF. So in vitro fertilization is something that's relatively widespread right now, mm. but there's a lot of known risks. So when you go through IVF, you're more likely to have a premature baby. You're likely to have, if you have a, a boy um, and you do what's called uh, uh ICSI. This is getting too complicated, maybe, <laughs> but you can decide if you want to keep it later. Um, so if you inject a sperm into an egg, you're creating basically future generations of boys that might be infertile. So, so there's all kinds of known risks with oh, IVF. Yeah. To, to have a baby that has, say, resistance to HIV or some trait that you might think is desirable, you're going to have to take that risk of putting your child through IVF. Mm. And with China uh, producing these two babies, Lulu and Nana, I think their nicknames were um, these two little girls, were, did you get to see these babies at all? No, the, in fact, uh, the scientist, Dr. Ha, misled the public. So in, in making an announcement, he said that there were two beautiful, healthy babies that mm. had just been born. In fact, they were quite premature and were delivered by emergency C-section, not in accordance to the plan that he'd outlined. Um, so, so at this point, the identity of those two babies has 
been kept secret. Um, their location is secret. And at this point, the international community and, and even um, scientific experts don't know if these babies are, are doing okay. So we don't actually know if they're even still alive as such, these babies, because there's no, they're not in the public eye now. That's right. So the Chinese government has stepped in. Um, Dr. He has been removed from from the experiment. His lab's been shut down. He lost his job. Um, He still owns um, substantial shares in biotechnology companies. Uh, He's still sitting quite well in terms of financial uh, matters, but uh, it's it's totally opaque as as to what's Mm. happening with these, these children. And do you think, what's your sort of personal stance on, I know this is getting quite deep, but whether you should sort of be able to potentially play God with genetics like this? So scientists are fond of talking about playing God. If you go to someone like uh, uh, Watson, the guy who uh, you know is is famous for discovering DNA, that's a phrase he loves to use. He loves to use it to rile up Christian conservatives. Mm. If if you look at Watson's biography, it's telling uh, both about uh, this the story of of a guy who's who's kind of taking advantage of other people and popularizing these myths about DNA. So for starters, he stole his results from a woman. <laughs> There's a woman who was taking X-rays of DNA, uh, and um, she got cancer as a result. She exposed her body to um, these these radiation. Um, Watson took her experiment and basically published data, became super famous, and at the same time he was promoting these myths about the outsized role that DNA plays in, in shaping you know, human nature. So mm. the popular myth is that DNA is what tells us about our identity, uh, that it has the secret to every you know, medical problem, that it's even the source of cosmic truth. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the results of the Human Genome Project, a map of the first genome of the human species, uh, what you see is very little concrete medical benefits coming out of that. Uh, mm. Just now, almost 20 years later, we're starting to see some medical applications of genetic technology. So one of the risks in thinking about CRISPR and thinking about DNA is overemphasizing the ability of this molecule to sort of shape our destiny. At the same time, there are certain things that you can tweak. Say you want to knock out a gene for myostatin. That would produce a baby with massive muscles. So if you're trying to produce an elite Olympic athlete, <laughs> you could knock out myostatin. You could knock out EPO, a, a gene that um, is, is related to uh, red blood cell oxygen carrier capacity. You could do a lot of edits that might be kind of extreme. You could also knock out a gene that um, uh, is related to the ability to feel pain. So you could create pain-free oh, wow. child soldiers that have enhanced endurance. That's incredible. But the flip side to that is that knocking out myostatin increases cardiac uh, uh uh, you know, arrests. You produce a, a child that would be more likely to have heart attacks. Um, if you don't feel pain, often babies are like biting off their own tongues because mm. they're, um, you know, not able to sense normal things in oh, their environment. Exactly. We do need pain. It tells us what's going on, doesn't it? Yeah. So, so you could, you know, imagine how this technology could be used by a military force, by, mm. you know, uh, the Pentagon, let's say, or DARPA, this special division of the U.S. government that does these top secret, innovative blue sky projects, but projects that might seriously dir- disrupt what it means to be human. 
Um, so you could think of all kinds of dystopic scenarios like that. At the same time, you know, there are a few concrete medical uses. And then there's also sort of more banal things like you were mentioning, the ways that these tools could be used to, uh, you know, change the color of a baby's skin or potentially mm. eye color or, or hair color. These are all technically within the realm of these emergent technologies. And we can definitely do that now. Like we're at that stage where we can eradicate pain someone from feeling pain like a, a human. Are we at that stage right now? We can do that? So with, with pain specifically, there, it's well studied, and this has been studied, it reported early in journals in the 1930s and um, more recently in um, a couple of families in, in Afghanistan. And the genetics of that are pretty well understood. Mm. Um, the problem is, again, CRISPR is unpredictable. Um, there's all this fantasy about editing, but it's not precise. So we, we can disrupt things. We can, you know, produce breaks in the DNA that might get repaired in a messy kind of way. But in terms of line by line editing, the tools just aren't there yet. Okay. And I guess too, that that's on my brain sort of just going over to every action, there's an equal reaction, but you're saying with CRISPR, you know, you're not really sure what kind of reaction you're going to get. You could change something and it could affect, you know, all these other things that you haven't really considered in that human. So one of the problems with CRISPR is um, off-target effects. People talk mm. a lot about the ways that you design it to target a particular gene, but it goes off-target and targets another gene. That is getting uh, dealt with relatively well by advances in molecular biology. CRISPR is becoming increasingly good at sort of being a high-fidelity target. The problem that they're finding is that there are on-target effects. So, uh, for example, with Dr. Hu, the guy who created these babies in China, and some of his preclinical work with human embryos, he found that CRISPR was creating these massive deletions at the site that he was targeting. The, the gene that allows HIV to get into cells, it's a receptor called CCR5. So if you knock out just a few letters of the DNA involved in coding that receptor, you're likely to knock it out. HIV is not going to have a way to get into the cell. Mm. But if CRISPR does more than you bargain for, if it's more like a, you know, a, a massive nuclear explosion rather than a targeted <laughs> precision missile strike, it takes out a bunch more DNA. And that's, that's what he found in, in some of these preclinical trials. So when, when you're doing this in an actual human baby, you want to be pretty sure that you're going to get what you bargained yes. for. And, and at this point, we don't have diagnostic technologies that are good enough to tell us, okay, I've tried to do this edit. Um, I'm going to take a cell away and sample it and see if the edit more or less turned out how I predicted. We, we don't have the right diagnostic tools mm. yet to, to sort of do the whole genome sequencing and make sure that that edit happened in all the baby's cells. So is it that CRISPR is itself, that whatever that sort of is, that technology, is that sort of almost a little bit intelligent, like it's doing its own thing? Or is it that just we don't have enough research about what it can do? So an individual molecule that you design in a lab is not going to be intelligent. You design the CRISPR for to target a particular mm -hmm. sequence of DNA. So you give it a couple of letters of DNA code. And when you're designing it, you are trying to design it as specific as possible. So you're trying to find a sequence that doesn't repeat in the genome. Um, it's also a bacterial immune system. So, so this is kind mm. of backing up from 
uses of CRISPR in molecular biology to more talk about where it originated from. Mm. So originally, CRISPR was sort of an intelligent system. So bacteria have this as a immune defense system against viruses. So in bacteria, CRISPR basically goes out and chops up viruses. So, mm -hmm. so when viruses come, um, CRISPR can recognize genetic patterns that it has already identified, and it's more efficient at chopping them up. So mm -hmm. when CRISPR in a bacteria encounters a new virus, basically the bacteria copies bits of the genes and holds on to them. So the bacteria keeps a memory of viruses that it's encountered. So, so in nature, there's kind of this dynamic process. And, and interestingly, Dr. Ha, the guy who worked on these Chinese babies, did his PhD on um, CRISPR in these bacterial systems. So, mm -hmm. he, so he had this interesting background um, to think about how it was working uh, in, in the wild before he brought it into the lab. Is this something we're going to see closer to home in Australia? Are we going to see this happening here shortly? or? So at the same time that China is backpedaling on this, mm -hmm. instituting some very clear rules that prevent further embryo editing for reproductive purposes, Australia already has a legal framework that would make this kind of work very difficult. So Australia mm -hmm. is one of the, the environments around the world that is the most restrictive for this kind of research. And obviously we are, you know, talking about um, the ethics around, you know, the ethics really come into um, into play and religion comes into play with all of this uh, at, you know, at what point does, you know, a soul actually enter an embryo or a sperm and, and an egg? At what point does the soul enter and it become a person and that's something that we've discussed you know throughout history and and probably every person has a different take on that question itself what's your take on that and is that where the ethical sort of side of things really comes into play so, so in China, there's a very secular ethical system that kind of governs how things work. And, and, and I think you also have to see China as a place where reproductive technologies are very much a part of making babies. So mm -hmm. under the one child policy, couple, couples were only given one opportunity to make a child. So there's a real premium placed on, on the quality of children. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a word called yusheng, which could translate as quality or could also translate as eugenics. So in China, I think you see this being rolled out in a, a cultural milieu that places value on sort of having a beautiful, perfect child. And, and yeah. it's very similar to, to ways that people talk about giving birth here or in the States. Everyone aspires to have that perfect child. But I, I think as, as these technologies come online, there's the danger that, you know, some kind of vision of perfection doesn't give room for, for diversity, for variation, for the sort of unconditional love that a parent might develop uh, mm. for a child that inherently is going to have flaws, like every human has flaws. So, so recognizing the flaw as part of the human condition for me is, is what's important. And, and I think, you know, as we're try trying to do experiments not only in people but in animals, what gets to count as a subject that is worthy of ethical regard is mm. of the utmost importance. So different labs are humanizing animals in different kinds of ways. There's also proposals to incorporate uh, non-human genes into people. So as the line of who gets to count as human starts to blur, all of a sudden ethical questions 
are going to be turned on their head. Mm. Uh, all of a sudden, things get opened up in new kinds of ways. The sorts of experiments that are done on rats and monkeys these days, you know, are, are, are we going to think about those differently if all of a sudden we have humanized rats and humanized monkeys? If we have non-human genes in us, if we're part fish or part, <laughs> you know, plant, does that all of a sudden disqualify us from full personhood? Are, are we going to see new yeah. kinds of slavery? And, and wow. you know, this, is, this has been imagined in all kinds of so, science fiction scenarios. So can we do that yet? Can we put like some fish genes into a human and we can semi-breathe underwater? Or like is that something or is that where it could go? So some genetic engineering kitsch like there's an art project uh, around the year 2000 eduardo cack took uh, the green fluorescent protein from jellyfish and put it into a bunny rabbit like something like that would be super easy to do like we know how to do that we could make humans with green glowing skin not whoa problem. you're kidding yeah so we knew how to do that 20 years ago and, you know, there's there's certain uses that might be seen as French, you know, like the punks or the freaks or the geeks might choose to, you know, remake themselves with these new technologies. And people already are starting to do this. Um, but, you know, there's there's those kinds of communities of users that are engaging with these technologies. And then there's the the well healed um, capital intensive, like big companies that are also heavily investing in this right now, too. This episode is presented by Deakin University. You can find all of the show notes and other great content related to this chat at disruptor.deakin.edu.au or find us on socials at Deakin Research. This is sort of leading me back to my year 12 uh, English <laughs> exam, Evan. We had to study the movie Gadiga. And for those listening at home um, who haven't seen the movie, you should definitely see it. It's so interesting. But basically in this movie, there's two kinds of humans. There's the genetically enhanced and then there's your regular average Joe uh, type human like uh, you and me. No offense, I think you might actually be some sort of superhuman by reading your bio, but <laughs> basically there was two kinds of humans. Is this like that's really looking forward into maybe the not so distant future if we go down that path of having these sort of superhumans who, you know, at say the Olympics, we're going to have to have different events for them as opposed to humans like us. So if you go back to a much earlier work of science fiction, Adol, uh, Huxley's uh, uh, Brave New World, right? So mm -hmm. there he describes social engineering. So you have humans in hatcheries and, you know, sex is no longer part of the equation. And from birth, from before birth, you're predestined to a certain social caste. Mm. So, so the alphas are given extra enhancements and conditioning in, in the brave new world. And um, the epsilons are deprived of oxygen. They're given alcohol and other poisonous substances when they're still in this prenatal incub incubator. And, you know, thinking about the near future... I don't think we'll see social engineering of that sort. You know, there are sorts of technologies that we know how to use that could either enhance or decrease human capacity. Many of those are already in the marketplace. You see um, chemical enhancements being used mm -hmm. by Wall Street stockbrokers. You see different kinds of athletes, whether it's... it's um, uh, the athlete from South Africa who had enhanced legs. He lost his legs, but then had 
new uh, uh, blades put on his feet and he could actually run faster than a lot of other people. So mm -hmm. there's already all kinds of enhancement technologies out there. So, so part of the question is, you know, is there anything special about DNA? So one mistake is to assume that DNA is too powerful, that it's going to suddenly, you know, disrupt the world in, in a way that these previous enhancements haven't. Um, you know, there's something lasting about DNA. If, if you're doing it to a, a human baby, not only are you editing the genes of that baby, that's a gene edit that's going to go on to future generations. You know, and, and if, you know, editing again is a poor metaphor, if you're tinkering, if you're um, doing genetic surgery where things might go wrong, those, those errors might also go wrong in the future. Um, so, so I think as this technology gets rolled out, so, so again, at the current moment, we're not at a place where going through IVF is going to produce any kind of enhancement, like to get, so things that would give you social advantage. So, so we live in a racist society, right? So if you mm -hmm. have blue eyes, blonde hair, you know, if you're on the streets of Chicago and you get pulled over by a cop, you're much less likely to be pulled out of the car and shot, right? So that's mm. that's a very clear social advantage. Yeah. But even getting that clear social advantage, like is the risk of going through IVF going to be worth it? IVF is producing all kinds of harm mm. to, to babies. Not, not to say that, you know, like every time I talk about IVF, I, I got to be careful because there's a lot of people out there um, who emerged with this technology. It's not to say like everyone who's an IVF baby is a freak, but, you know, we've got to think carefully about, you know, as this gets celebrated as a potential technology of human enhancement, mm. you know, like, let's really carefully think about what the actual risks are to the, to the individual fetus and the individual baby. Most people go through IVF right now because they're having fertility problems to all of a sudden elect to undergo this procedure mm. for some imagined enhancement. You know, that's, 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 um, not necessarily a calculated cost-benefit ratio that I would go for. Yeah, that's just, that's a really good point that you've made there that, you know, really do your research like into it. And, you know, the often, you know, if you, if you can't go down the natural way, like it, it is fantastic that we have that technology, but, you, you know, you're saying that you wouldn't opt for that over, you know, something naturally is that so right now we have massive companies around the world mm -hmm. that are profiting off of IVF, right? And they've already introduced a whole bunch of untested extras that you can get in mm -hmm. the IVF clinic. The very basic thing of injecting the sperm in the egg, that originally happened by accident. There was no clinical trial to figure out like, oh, is this a good or a bad thing? Since that initial accident, there have been long-term studies and found that if you inject the sperm in the egg, you're, you're producing babies, male babies, that are going to have a lower fertility rate. So you're basically creating future customers. It's a great business model. If, if you're in IVF and in 20, 30 years, you want to have a repeat customer when, when your IVF baby comes back to make more babies. Um, but there's all sorts of other untested IVF extras. And these big companies are actively recruiting CRISPR scientists mm. to find a legal jurisdiction where they can push this technology forward. Again, you know, consumers are, are, are often in a very vulnerable position. If someone's trying to have a baby, you know, people are willing to pull out all the stops, to, to pull out their life savings, to even mm. sell their house in some cases. So people are already being offered these things that are untested. Mm. It's not that different for these companies to start selling CRISPR. But whether or not, even if it is on offer, say in Israel, where there's already a very advanced um, fertility market, or in Thailand, where reproductive tourism is already a big deal. You know, if CRISPR starts getting offered in some of these clinics, 
you know, couples should think very carefully about, you know, what the what the risks of a particular edit might be versus any potential benefit. Earlier, um, you mentioned mutants. I actually heard you say, and that got me thinking straight about uh, the movies of X-Men, which I absolutely love. Uh, Hugh Jackman, there's a new one coming out soon, I think. Are you an X-Men fan, Eben? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Is that something that we could uh, potentially see happen as well? You know, we're talking, you know, a lot about sci-fis, you know, looking at a lot of things that could potentially happen in the future. That really applies to some of the stuff that, you know, you've mentioned earlier. Yeah. So if you look at some of the basic X-Men stories, and there's a million different X-Men stories that fly off in different directions, um, you know, one of the big plot points is about eugenics. So this young Jewish boy at a concentration camp is separated by his parents in the opening scene of, of the X-Men 2 movie, right? Mm. And these metal fences crumble. And, you know, it's this moment of kind of confusion. The boy doesn't really know what's going on. He doesn't sort of really appreciate the full extent of his powers. You fast forward several decades and you meet Magneto, this, this supervillain who recognizes that his kind, mutant kind, is the target of xenophobia and fear and discrimination. And he sees a new final solution coming. You know, he saw, he saw his parents and his relatives, the Jews, get exterminated during the Second World War. And he sees this new wave of, of um, you know, militarism and, and violence coming. So, so even the supervillain of the X-Men has a very interesting ethical take. Like, mm. you know, in, in fighting for survival, you know, there, there's different characters like Professor Xavier and, and the X-Men who are fighting Magneto because they don't see violence as, as the way to resolve this, but, mm. you know, more maybe diplomatic kinds of, of ways forward. But, yeah, the fact that diversity, the fact that um, spontaneous mutation, the fact that disability so often gets treated as an aberration, as, as something abnormal that should be corrected. For me, that's, that's why the X-Men is an excellent parable for thinking mm. about both the promise and the peril of these technologies. You know, CRISPR could be used to create a whole new era of diversity for the human species. Mm. I mean, we're not going to be controlling the weather like storm anytime soon you know <laughs> laser we, eyes you know we haven't found the the gene for yeah you know controlling metal um but there are things that we could we could tweak and we could produce all kinds of things that are radically different from what counts as the normal human so so one of the people i profile in my book is named gregor wolbring and um his body already looks very different from ours. Um, his mother took thal thalidomide, this, this drug for morning mm. sickness. Um, and, um, you know, he, he came out with, with limbs that are very different from, from yours or mine. Um, he's very happy getting around um, uh, crawling. Uh, he, he says that, you know, some people say that crawling is undignified, but I crawl, you know, whenever I can. Um, he also says um, in, in this movie that's amazing, it's called Fixed. It's all about him and other people that are grappling with new tools of, of human enhancement. Mm. Um, he says, I, I don't necessarily want to walk, but I want to fly. He's, he's curious about other forms of human embodiment. So, so I, I turn to you know, artists like Patricia Piccinini here in Melbourne, who's created the Sky Whale, this amazing blimp, this sculpture that flies through the sky, to think about what this this tool might sort of produce that's that's different from 
current modes of being human. Wow. And does he sort of, uh, going back to um, that person in particular, does does he have extra limbs? Does he have not um, not the amount of limbs that we have? What does he specifically, what happened? So Gregor Wolbring is, is a biochemist and mm. um, he has technologies that allow him to get around in the world. He's got a car that has a special steering wheel. So his hands are, are a, a lot um, uh, smaller than ours and mm. arms are a lot smaller. So are his legs. But he, he knows how to get through the world. He, he can work in a lab. He can also work a computer. And um, he's, he's both an excellent biochemist and a scholar. So, you know, whether society treats people like him as aberrations, as um, sort of part of the human existence that should not be, you know, should, should we prevent people like him from being born? In his case, it wasn't a genetic disability. It wasn't a genetic uh, uh, error that led to his current state. But he sees kinship with other disabled people and, mm. you know, people who have Down syndrome, people who have all sorts of genes that make them different from us. Should they be allowed to live or, or are we going to kill them? And, mm. you know, CRISPR could edit certain kinds of people out of existence. Wow. And Eben, if you could change one thing about, I guess, gene editing or this topic in general right now to ensure that we are on a smooth path to the future, what would that one thing be? Actually, I'm going to, ref- I'm going to answer <laughs> your question a different way. So if, <laughs> if I were to use CRISPR to make one change in myself, I think I would enhance my ability to see color. So some women mm. uh, have this condition called tetrachromacy, where they can see millions of additional colors, like nine million. Like I, I don't want to enhance myself for sports or try to tinker with my brain, and you know I don't think the genetic knowledge is there to even do that. But if I were able to add an additional receptor to one of my eyes um, mm. to get tetrachromacy, or, or maybe I'd want to borrow a receptor from a honeybee or something else that would let me see ultraviolet light or the polarity of light, to me that would be interesting. Not because I'm interested in being a super soldier or anything, but I, I'd just be curious to see the world in a different way. And have those extra senses and experience, you know, all that there is to offer. That's a really good point. Now, I want to talk about um, when you were a young tacker, not real young, but just in 1998, you were an exchange student living in uh, West Papua. Um, and I've read that this was something that helped shape who you are and what you've studied. And it was very formative for you. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, when I was an undergraduate student, I tried to spend as little time as possible on campus. I loved my courses, but I also (laughs) went out into the world. So I I did a semester in West Papua. I did another one in Panama and Costa Rica. Then I also went to Harvard as as an exchange student. Um, When I was in West Papua, I happened to be there in the midst of a revolution and a genocide. So within Mm. two weeks of arriving on campus, I was just hanging out, chatting with some professors about a Discovery Channel film that one of them had just helped make. And uh, there was a little protest happening. And all of a sudden, the police showed up. And we all started running. And uh, we got into this coffee shop. And then these popping noises started. And 
uh, everyone's like, oh, it must just be fireworks. And um, then there was this big explosion right outside of the, the coffee shop where we were eating. And we dove under the table oh. and hid there for a half an hour. And when we came out, I learned that two students had just been shot. A law student, uh, Stefan Suripati, was shot in the head and killed. And a young girl in middle school who was just mm. a bystander was shot in the leg. Um, so, so yeah, basically I, uh, I went to West Papua just interested in nature and culture and basic things that, uh, an ethnobiologist or an anthropologist might, um, want to explore, but a, a whole decade of my life mm. came to be, uh, spent just trying to make sense of, of this genocide and revolution that was happening. Wow, I've just got shivers listening to that. In September 2010, you testified in a congressional hearing in the US House of Representatives about, um, was it that particular massacre? Uh, I, I testified about a number of, of different uh, uh, massacres and um, I had the privilege of, of working um, directly with the chair of that committee a wonderful man named Enifalia Vama Vega. He was a non-voting delegate from American Samoa and had a personal interest in West Papua. So, so I basically learned that, you know, people in positions of power are approachable. If, mm. if you have compelling knowledge, compelling stories, you can, you know, get their ear. So not only did he invite me to testify, he invited me to assemble a panel of experts to basically dwell on this, this genocide that was going on. So we had this moment in Congress where um, t 12 indigenous elders, uh, my parents happened to live in Washington, D.C., and their ba basement basically habitually became a boarding house for indigenous people from West Papua. So they all slept on, on my parents' basement floor that night and uh, uh, went into Congress smuggling through these big drums and these massive feathered headdresses. So they burst out of the metal detector, put them <laughs> on, and just paraded down the halls of Congress singing with these these congressional staff members, uh, you know, Republicans that looked like peering around, wondering if they needed to call security. <laughs> Just phenomenal story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Eben. And do you have anything that you want our listeners to know today that we haven't touched on just before we finish up? Is there anything that you want to get across that I haven't asked you? Well, I think in, in focusing my book on CRISPR, the tendency is to celebrate DNA too much. So thinking about ways that, you know, what makes us human is a really complicated question. You know, we, we learn languages, we have lived experiences of marginalization and oppression. And in thinking about this, this new tool, CRISPR, what I'm trying to do is give a presence to the voices of, of the patients who are, are trying to engage with these technologies to bring new futures into the present. Um, to think critically about the ways that biotech is, is pushing this, this tool in risky directions, in directions that it probably shouldn't go yet. So, so, mm. so let's slow down, right? Let's, let's look at what this tool can do, but also be very cautious and, and not let these, these techno-future dreams get in the way of more important values and more important ethical considerations that we already know how to deal with in the present. Eben, what drives you to study this and, and, and look at things the way that you do? Ultimately, I'm interested in science and justice. I'm, I'm interested in the ways that tools like CRISPR play out within fields that are structured by inequality. So mm. the risk with a technology like this is speculation about the future is getting in the way of the present reality. So lived experiences of social inequality in the present 
are very visible. So for example, the first clinical trial with CRISPR in the United States is happening in Philadelphia, where African-American people disproportionately suffer from cancer. I went to the CRISPR Hall of Fame of sorts. I mean, it's, it's actually the Cancer Survivor Hall of Fame at mm-hmm. Penn Medicine. So the Cancer Survivor Hall, Hall of Fame at Penn Medicine is all white people. So there's one Asian American boy who who's part of this. And you know, who's getting access to these emergent technologies is a huge question. So mm-hmm. the, the risk of speculating about this future to come, this day that technology is going to miraculously save us all, is getting in the way of thinking critically about who has access to healthcare right now, who has access to clean drinking water, mm-hmm. who has access to public transportation. Like, can can people live in the city? So, so the biotech innovation economy in many places, whether it's in Shenzhen, China, Philadelphia or Melbourne, you know, this excitement about innovation in the future is getting in the way of social reality in the present. Mm. If you could recommend one book to the younger generation to get them on the right path to ensure the Earth's future, what would that be? Just one book. That would be Larissa Lai's Saltfish Girl. It's it's about these genetically modified humans called the Sanyas that have fish genes in them. And they've basically become corporate slaves. They are working for this company and um, they've been bred to you know, be compliant and not be that intelligent. But the story is about me mutation and the power of mutation to resist capitalism, to resist these companies that are trying to exploit us. So I'm not going to spoil the end, but there's a very happy ending that is all about the promise of mutation to to liberate us from these these, uh, companies that are trying to take advantage of us. That sounds so good. I'm putting that on my list to read and we can link to that in the show notes as well. Eben, Lastly, if your life was a movie, what would it be called and who would star in it? Maybe Monty Python's Meaning of Life, (laughs) Glenn Cleese. Oh, that's perfect. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolutely phenomenal chat. I'm just, I could talk to you for hours and hopefully one day we'll get you back and we'll dive in even deeper. Thank you so much, Eben, for joining us on the Change One Thing podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to review, subscribe and share with your friends.